small town life is a bittersweet symphony. It usually involves a tight-knit community, quiet calm roads, and a main street with all of the attractions. Or at least that's how it was in my case. While all that sounds nice, the yin to that yang is the lack of things to do. Our subject today deals with that very same thing, small town life. Following three teens in a Texas community over the course of a year, we experience their pains, their joys, their boredom, and their decisions as they navigate what we all must navigate at some point in our lives. What will life be like after high school as they venture into adulthood? It's a movie with hard-hitting drama, tremendous acting and cinematography, and it's among the best products of an important American movement in cinema. So if you're like me, and you enjoy film and the impact and emotions they convey, then grab a glass of your preferred beverage and join me for the next little while. For me, that's a can of Pick of the Batch, which is a pumpkin ale from our friends at Cape May Brewery. So sit back, relax, and let's talk about the love of film. Welcome to Glazed Cinema. small-town charm exists. However, I feel like that phrase exists for those not from the town, but instead for tourists passing through. While some love small-town life, it's not for everyone, myself included. I only know this because I lived most of my life, at least to this point, in a small town in upstate New York. I enjoyed my childhood thoroughly, and wouldn't trade any of it for the world. But as I grew up into young adulthood, and especially after high school, so did my appetite for something more. I yearned to be somewhere that had culture, attractions, and art that I could digest. When I did eventually move, I was fortunate to find a home in Philadelphia, where I love to live now. Today's subject tackles a group of teens in a similar position during a transitional period in their lives. They, too, live in a small town, even smaller than mine, and are about to graduate high school. It's a film that's a slow and brooding drama with phenomenal acting and a roller coaster of emotions. Our story takes place in a small town in the heart of the Lone Star State named Anarene, Texas, 
There's not much to do, and there would be even less without the contributions of a man named Sam. Sam, otherwise known as Sam the Lion, is a widower who lives with his mute son, Billy. Sam, played by Western veteran Ben Johnson, is treasured among the town, but especially so by two young men who see him as a mentor. The two young men are on the high school football team and are the co-captains. Both of them, Sonny and Dwayne, are best friends and live together in a boarding house in town. Sonny, played by Timothy Bottoms, is sensitive and shy in public, but in his element when he's with Dwayne, his best friend. Dwayne is played by Jeff Bridges, and on the other hand, is more outgoing and confident than Sonny. He's a fun-loving guy who is a star athlete, especially on the high school football team. Usually hanging around with the two boys is J.C., Dwayne's girlfriend, played by Sybil Shepard. J.C. is the town beauty, who lives with her mother, for who she is very similar to. J.C. craves attention, in whatever variety she can ascertain it. She especially likes attention from the opposite sex, which becomes increasingly more important to her as the movie goes on. Two of the places we usually find them is in their vehicles, either driving around or hanging out inside of them. Those include Dwayne's Mercury and Sonny's truck. Of course, other than that, it would seem that most everyone we follow also has one other thing in mind. I'm sure you can guess what that is. Speaking of which, there is some partial nudity in this film, so be warned if watching with younger audiences. We join the three friends during a transitional moment in their lives, which takes place in the 1950s. Each is a high school senior, wrestling with their aspirations of the future, while preparing for the unknown that lies ahead of them. While in school, and without much to do in the town, they busy themselves with what fun they can find. This includes fishing in the turtle pond, where there are no fish, the local pool hall, the diner, and the movie theater. The three latter businesses are all owned by Sam, and the boys frequent all three throughout the movie, but they especially love the Royal Theater. With graduation creeping ever closer, the question of what they do next becomes frightening. As more and more people begin to leave the town for bigger cities, the place they know and love gets smaller and smaller every day. Standing on the edge of the precipice, each must decide what their futures will entail. Now, we've talked about three of probably the characters that have the most screen time, but there are two other very important characters in this movie, so I'll introduce them briefly. 
One of them is JC's mother, Lois, played by Ellen Burstyn. Lois is an attractive woman who is married to a rich man in town. Lois enjoys the lavish side of life and likes to have fun, but her surroundings make both of those kind of hard. Her parenting style is a bit blasé, usually speaking to JC more as a friend as opposed to a mother. She also very much enjoys bourbon and the sleep that having too much of it provides her. The other character is Ruth Popper, the football coach's wife, played by Cloris Leachman. Ruth is a lonely woman who feels neglected by her husband, who puts a lot of time into coaching football. A housewife, she is bored and a bit depressed. She does have one thing that draws her attention, but I'll leave that for you to find out. I mention these two characters because both women's performances in the last picture show are standouts in the film. They both do magnificent jobs depicting the characters they portray. Burstyn is phenomenal as Lois, especially thanks to the ease in which she displays emotion. She doesn't have a whole lot of screen time, but the time she does have is felt. She has a presence, and it permeates the screen. Leachman does equally well as Ruth, and it may be the performance of her career. I feel like she puts everything into portraying Ruth, and it really feels that way. I feel almost everything that she displays in her character, whether that's laughter, neglect, sadness, happiness, everything is palpable. And Ruth feels incredibly three-dimensional. Apart from these performances, those of Jeff Bridges, Timothy Bottoms, and Sybil Shepard are also fantastic, though, in my personal opinion, not quite on par with the aforementioned women. All three are very early on in their careers, and this effort marks either the first or one of the first motion picture roles all of them ever had. For me, all three knock their assignments out of the park, as each character feels alive and well fleshed out. Also, funnily enough, there's also a tie to our last episode, Clue, here as well, since Eileen Brennan appears in both pictures. She is Miss Peacock in Clue, and she is Genevieve, the diner waitress, in today's subject. The last picture show is based on a novel of the same name, written by Larry McMurdy. McMurdy wrote the book as a semi-autobiographical account of his childhood. He renamed his hometown in the book to Thalia, which is interesting as the movie too renamed it to Anarene. McMurdy's actual hometown is Archer City, Texas, and pretty much every scene in our subject today was filmed there. If you're asking where Anarene originated from, it happens to have a pretty interesting story in and of itself. 
Turns out that Anarene is an actual town just south of Archer City. But it's a ghost town. Nobody's lived there for quite a long time. The director chose the name Anarene as an ironic pun on the ghost town theme within The Last Picture Show. Directed by Peter Bogdanovich, The Last Picture Show captures the thoughts and emotions of teens in a small town, as we've previously said. The stifling feeling when dreams, aspirations, and ambition are too big for the town. It's a feeling I was all too familiar with when I first saw this movie while living in my own small town. Granted, my town was bigger than the one depicted in our subject today, but the feelings I felt were there. As Rush once said, the suburbs have no charms to soothe the restless dreams of youth. One of the great successes of our subject today is the cinematography. It's a film shot entirely in black and white using a 35mm camera and the cinematography was done by Robert Sorties. Originally, the plan was to shoot in color, but Bogdanovich thought black and white would suit the plot more. He thought color would make everything too pretty, and that black and white would feel more real and grittier. Part of that feeling came from a legendary director who he had befriended, Orson Welles. Bogdanovich, in a conversation with the veteran filmmaker, said, I want to get the depth of field you had in Citizen Kane and the young Ambersons. Wells said back, You'll never get it in color. Shoot it in black and white. It's an actor's picture. You know what they say about black and white, don't you? Black and white is an actor's best friend because every performance looks better in black and white. The Last Picture Show is a product of the legendary BBS Productions, founded by Bob Rafelson, Bert Schneider, and Steve Blonner. The company's name derives from the initials of their first names. BBS produced some of the best films of what would be known as the New Hollywood Movement or the Hollywood New Wave. I personally prefer the New Hollywood Movement, mainly because it seems like a lot of other movements take New Wave in its name, whether that be the Czech New Wave, the French New Wave, the Polish New Wave. So something to make it stand out. I just prefer that a little bit, but both mean the exact same thing. The New Hollywood Movement was an awakening in American cinema, which began to crawl with films like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. Both films were much different than anything coming out of America at that time, and ushered in an artful take on filmmaking. What followed was a creative awakening, and artists began to emerge that are considered today to be among the best of their craft. By the time New Hollywood laid its head down to rest 
cinema was left with some undeniable classics. All of the films had few things in common, but maybe the most important was the emphasis on the craft of filmmaking and storytelling. Here we find emotion, characters, drama, and subtext being pumped up to the max, all while being done in a very realistic way. That's one thing I really enjoy about this movement, is that nothing really ever seems forced. Everything just feels very, very natural, which is a credit to the execution being done. If you're unfamiliar with this movement, some examples of notable pictures may help. You can think of this movement with Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, Raging Bull, Chinatown, The Exorcist, Manhattan, and The Deer Hunter, to name just a few. Within the new Hollywood movement, BBS produced a film I did on a previous episode called Five Easy Pieces, and they also did one of my all-time favorite films, and no doubt a future episode of Clay Cinema, Easy Rider. By the time 1971 came around, BBS sought to give more directors an opportunity to make creative pictures, and in came Peter Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich was a writer for Esquire magazine at the time, and obsessed with movies. He once said that in his youth, he saw 400 films a year. He also curated movies for MoMA in New York. He landed his first directing gigs, as so many other directors of the time can say, thanks to Roger Corman. Roger Corman produced low-budget movies and gave several notable directors their first seat in the director's chair. It was through these releases and the esteemed reputation he had built that BBS sought him out for today's subject, and the rest they say is history. Now, when I watched this film for the first time, I was pretty much in the same moment of my life as Sonny, Dwayne, and Chasey were. I too was considering my future after high school, dreaming of going to other places, and considering what my next steps would entail. All of my interests didn't have homes in my town, and I dreamed of finding somewhere they could be housed and nourished so they could flourish. When I watched The Last Picture Show, a lot resonated with me. Now, while I couldn't relate to everything, there was enough there to harpoon my interest and attention. It felt effortlessly honest and authentic, but more importantly, naturally so, which speaks volumes to the performances and the execution. I felt a real sense of place, and for me at that moment, it was the perfect film for the perfect time. It triggered my interest in independent American cinema, and I very much wanted to see more of it. It had a very similar effect to those watching it for the first time upon its release also, 
sparking the creative outlets of many aspiring filmmakers. It also drew some controversy for the lewd language found within its 118-minute duration. Apart from that, however, the last picture show was heralded by audiences and critics alike at the time as a modern classic. It was also nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, and Best Screenwriting. And it came away with two wins, awarded to Cloris Leachman and Ben Johnson for Best Actress and Actor in a Supporting Roles, respectively. Like the characters in The Last Picture Show, each considering different avenues, the cast and crew of the film all went in separate directions afterwards. For some, including Jeff Bridges, this meant more acting opportunities that flourished into a stellar career. Bridges has since been tied to beloved characters like Bad Blake, The Dude, and Kevin Flynn, and turned in terrific performances through the years. For others, including Peter Bogdanovich, this led to brief success and a lot of unfortunate tragedy. Bogdanovich directed great movies like What's Up Doc and Paper Moon soon after the success of The Last Picture Show. After those pursuits, however, he never really reached the same heights. And sadly, by the mid-90s, he was bankrupt and his reputation in tatters. The new Hollywood movement lasted from 1967 to about 1980, and with it came a whole lot of highly skilled, highly respected directors, actors, screenwriters, cinematographers, and with their outputs came some of the greatest movies ever made. The movement saw an end when the blockbuster came about. 1975 saw probably the first one ever, which is my favorite movie, Jaws. But the death knell really came with Star Wars A New Hope in 1977, where studios really solidified a new formula that put a whole new spin on movie making. And really, I guess you could say we're still riding that wave, but of course today it's maxed out to the 12th degree. Personally, I miss the old ways of making movies during this new Hollywood movement. Things were simpler. It was about making movies for the love of making movies to make something artful that said something that really made us think, gave us cause to pause. Today, I feel like entertainment is so focused on that we lose a lot of the sight that the new Hollywood movement really came to be known for. But anyway, I'll get off my soapbox for a bit. The Last Picture Show was among those groundbreaking and classic films. A movie built on storytelling, characters, drama, realism, and emotion. 
it was almost lightning in a bottle that spoke to a generation and continues to resonate with people today. If you have never seen this film and enjoy the more nuanced side of cinema, I recommend pressing play on our subject today. There is a lot of meat on the bone, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. If you'd like to watch The Last Picture Show for yourself, you can find it on a variety of streaming services. At the time of this recording, you can find it on the Criterion Channel. The Criterion Channel is a service of tremendous value for both seasoned and burgeoning film fans alike. And it comes from our friends at the Criterion Collection. Pricing tiers include $10.99 per month, or $99 per year, which is what I chose to do. Apart from the Criterion channel, you can also find it on other streaming services, including Prime Video, Voodoo, Apple TV, Google Play, and YouTube for $3.99 to rent. This episode was written and recorded by me, Brian Kinney, with music by Kevin McLeod. If you like this podcast, tell your friends and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Each week, there will be new content, including hints about episodes before they air. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at glazedcinema.com. There you'll find more info about the show and a place to submit ideas for future episodes. For film fans who are hearing impaired, the blog page on our website features each episode in written form as well. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next time with another beverage and another fine film on Glazed Cinema.